News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 17th. It's show number 43 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and notes show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, our weekly talk with Todd commentator, about some of his errant preseason projections and his top 10 lists for the rest of the season. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Kyle Schwarber, Ken Giles, and more. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at Alex Gordon's replacement, Dustin Pedroia, and others. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Michael Pineda of the Yankees in Seattle to take on Hisashi Iwakuma, and a lone star state battle with Dallas Keuchel of the Astros hosting Giovanni Gallardo of Texas. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy talks about idle thoughts during the break. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The second half is underway. Of course, we gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Are you all set for the second half, do you think? I'm ready for the second half. And uh, I never ask our regular commentators this, but how are your teams doing? I, our teams are doing pretty well. i got five teams, and... Uh, one of them won the first half, and one of them was a game out of out in the first half, so not too bad, especially considering the number of injuries I had at various places. I guess that's everybody's complaint, though, this year, isn't it? Uh, it's a, a very rare fantasy team that hasn't had an injury to cope with. That's true. Uh, the Cubs have an injury to cope with. Their catcher, Miguel Montero, is on the shelf, and it looks like Kyle Schwarber, who was up earlier in the year to great excitement but was sent back down, has been recalled, and he's going to be in some kind of rotation. It looks like there'll be a kind of a catching rotation in Chicago between uh, probably Schwarber and David Ross will get most of the time. Uh, Schwarber is the only left-handed hitter of the bunch, so he may actually see the, the majority of the playing time as long as he can hold himself his own defensively behind the plate, and that's the issue with Schwarber. The bat has never been an issue. It's uh, whether he's, he's good enough defensively to stay at catcher or whether he winds up uh, in the outfield. Uh, but this is a guy with a tremendous bat, and when he was up... Uh, Play, playing DH earlier, he had 364 and 22 at-bats, a home run, six RBIs. Uh, his his underlying stats weren't nearly as good, an XBA of 239, a uh, uh, contact rate at 64%. So he's got some learning to do, but uh, here's a guy who could do some uh, some damage with the bat in the, in the time that he's up. I think the caution here is that that low, low contact rate, even if he brings it up, you know, a full six or seven points, he's still barely over 70% contact rate, and that has some pretty negative effects for his batting average expectations. Yeah, it does at this point. I mean, he's one of these guys who's certainly got a good bat, but he's got to learn to make better contact uh, in the major leagues, and uh, so we'll see how that how that pans out, especially as uh, as pitchers begin to get more of a look at him. 
Nick, you also mentioned the fact that uh, Kyle Schwarber is far from a polished catcher behind the plate, and that's a, a really important thing for a lot of teams, especially a team like the Cubs, which has aspirations to the postseason. And uh, even in our call-ups report when he was first called up, the projection from the BaseballHQ.com scouting team is that his potential is probably going to be a, a starting left fielder rather than a catcher, which had, diminishes his keeper value somewhat if the Cubs go along with that interpretation. It does indeed. The Cubs are trying very hard, I think, to keep him behind the plate because they uh, they know what a real asset his bat would be if he can hack it defensively as a catcher. So they're certainly giving him every chance to see if that will work. Um, probably more of a chance than a lot of teams would have given him to stay at that at that position. So I guess we'll just have to see. It may be that he's so horrendous defensively that uh, uh, that this doesn't work out at all and he winds up being an outfielder. But here's a guy who's potentially an all-star even if he's in the outfield. So uh, even in a keeper league, you might want to think about hanging on to him, uh, given his his, uh, his bat potential. The BaseballHQ.com scout Jeremy Deloney, who covered Kyle Schwarber's call-up, said the Cubs are convinced he can be a big league catcher, so there's some hope there, I suppose. Uh, uh, as you say, he has a lot more value as a fantasy player and as a real baseball player if he can stick behind the plate and bring you know that sort of 800-850 OPS to that uh, defensive position, be a huge benefit to the Cubs. We're projecting him for about 150 at-bats down the stretch, five homers, 21 RBIs, but again, be cautious about that batting average 238 is what we're expecting but nick 238 in this day and age isn't as bad as it would have been five years ago no that's true and it's not at all as bad as it would have been five years ago and uh, 238 with five homers and 20 rbis uh, not bad at all from a catcher in the second half five or six dollars value is what baseballhq.com says so that's kyle schwarber be aware of the batting average risk but there's certainly some power there uh steven nickrand our starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist nick is also doing bats this year and in his recent column about young skilled hitters he uh, focused in on some interesting names and one of them was a third baseman in san francisco and nick this guy came absolutely out of nowhere matt duffy that came completely out of nowhere but you, you look at what matt duffy has done in the first half and you've got to be impressed 293 batting average, eight home runs, 41 RBIs. That's a that's almost a $20 season in the first half. And and if you look at his projection for the second half, he's not projected to slow down. I mean, this guy's got some skill. His expected batting average first half was 283, just below is his real BA. Uh, nice hard hit contact index, uh, showing a good a good bit of power, uh, and even showing some some above average speed. So um, Matt Duffy's one of those guys that uh, you might be able to pick up uh, on the cheap because he's not certainly a household name, but the, he's showing real some real skill with the bat at this point. His record so far has been very solid. I wouldn't say it's spectacular, and in a way that might be a benefit because there's going to be lots of fantasy players in many leagues who are going to say, yeah, you know, he's okay, but I'm not going to bend over backwards to chase after him, which I think might be a mistake because underneath, as you say, underneath these solid but not spectacular results are some really intriguing skills. He's a $20 player so far this year. We're projecting him for $20 for the second half as well, including, as you mentioned, seven stolen bases, which is pretty nice from a third baseman yeah that, that kind of thing is real nice from a third baseman and you know we're we're looking at a total if we look at a total we're going to get double digit home runs double digit steals rbis around 80 280 batting average not bad at all for a guy that uh, that you've never heard of 
literally was not mentioned anywhere that I can remember in the run-up to the drafts this year, and uh, boy, he's, that's going to change next year, I, I bet you anything. Stephen Nickrand also, as I said, covers our uh, starting pitchers buyer's guide column, and one of the n- names he mentioned in a column, I like this column, Nick, it's it's base performance value leaders over the previous 12 months, so you're getting an entire season's worth up to the break, and uh, one of the names that popped is uh, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Brett Anderson. You know, it's amazing that Brad Anderson has been available in as many leagues as, as he has. I mean, he's simply kind of stayed on the waiver wire in a lot of places. In one of my leagues, he, he just got picked up last week. Here's a guy that in the first half of 3.17 ERA. Um, he, he, the thing you really have to like about Brad Anderson is this guy is a primarily a ground ball pitcher, 67% ground ball rate. So right. with that kind of a ground ball rate, you've got a really solid floor. He's not going to blow up on you and suddenly give up a ton of home runs uh, and blow up his ERA. So not a huge dom, 6.4 dom, but but solid command, solid control. Um, Brad Anderson is a guy I think worth having in your rotation. The caution with Brad Anderson has always been he gets hurt a lot. Uh, right. and so, so far, that hasn't happened this year. Of course, as soon as we talk about him on the air, he'll go out and get hurt and be done for the year. But there's certainly a long-term health risk here. But while he's playing, Brett Anderson is certainly a guy worth having on your team. I think you might be giving us a bit too much credit for magical influence on baseball, but I, I know what you're saying. With me, it's not so much talking about him as as getting him on my roster, which seems to trigger the uh, the uh, immediate devastating injury problem. Uh, it does do it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Is 317 ERA uh, so far this year in the first half has been pretty impressive. A 130 whip, maybe a little less so. But uh, what Stephen pointed to was that if you look back from the second half of last year plus the first half of this year, his ERA is actually under three with that 67% ground ball rate and a 100 base performance value, which is about 30 points higher than league average. Brett Anderson has really been getting the job done over the last full season if you ignore the winter. Uh, he's certainly got the job done in terms of ERA. He's, he's pitching well. His, uh, his uh, underlying, underlying um, numbers are very, very good. So a, a guy that I think is certainly worth, uh, worth looking at if he's available on your waiver wire. As we've talked about on the show, Nick, one of the things I really like is a pitcher who combines for a total uh, strikeout percentage plus ground ball percentage that's in the elite level, and certainly 67% ground balls around an 18 or 19% uh, strikeout rate when you're talking about strikeouts per plate appearance for Brett Anderson. You add the two things together, you're up around 85% or so, and that means in 85% of all the pl- batters that he's facing, they're either striking out or hitting the ball on the ground, which is a very, very good combination, very elite level. We're projecting uh, just three more wins for Brett Anderson down the stretch in 74 innings, only 56 strikeouts, but a 292 ERA is going to be pretty nice. Again, you got a 126 whip because as we know, a high ground ball pitcher tends to give up more hits because you know there, there's fewer cans of corn to haul in. So you got to be br- brace yourself for that whip impact. But all the rest of it looks really good. And finally, uh, Greg Pyron in playing time tomorrow, looking at the National League East, was focusing in on the likelihood that Jonathan Papelbon will be traded. Uh, everybody's expecting Philadelphia to be a real big seller at the break and at the trading deadline, I should say. And uh, if Jonathan Papelbon goes. It looks like Ken Giles draws in. What about Ken Giles? It certainly looks as though Ken Giles is poised to become the closer in, in uh, Philadelphia. We've we've known that for a couple of years, and, and certainly this year has done nothing to diminish that. At this point, a 1.86 ERA, a 1.24 whip, a 119 BPV, 11.4 DOM, so striking out a good number of batters. 
He's had a couple of blow-ups during the uh, during the first half, but uh, generally been very, very solid uh, all the way through. And so Jonathan Papelbon is out there asking to be traded, uh, and certainly it, it looks like Philadelphia is going to be a seller. So it, it seems almost certain that Papelbon will be gone and that Giles will take over. And uh, again, if he's one of those guys that's available in your league, now's the time to snatch him up and don't wait until that trade actually happens. Oh, for sure, because uh, if if it does happen, Ken Giles leaps up from being a you know eight to nine dollar middle relief uh, short man type guy into being a twenty five dollar closer because he can really bring it. Uh, the question, of course, is how do your roster rules in your league work? What does it cost you to maintain Ken Giles on reserve or to actually carrying him on your roster? versus the possibility that he ends up being uh, able to deliver you saves. And the other question that nobody ever seems to think about, Nick, is where are you in the saves category at this time? Right, very definitely. If you're 40 saves behind the rest of the league, then Ken Giles isn't going to help you. Although, I know that there's a school of thought that says if you get Ken Giles, maybe you can trade him to somebody who is in the thick of the saves battle and uh, maybe pick up something you do need. Uh, it's a, it's it's really interesting. We're projecting him right now for only two saves, but that's because BaseballHQ.com projections don't take into account speculative ideas like he might be the closer. Nick, thanks a million for talking with us. Uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Enjoy the start of the second half. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup analysis for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis and speculator columnist Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back. Since I asked uh, Nick this, I'll ask you this. How are your teams doing? Um, teams aren't doing bad. Uh, second place in my one deep uh, 20 team keeper league. Uh, got a, a chance to win. I'm about six or seven points out um, of a, a, a 200 possible points. And my other league, I am in same same type of format in the other league. I'm in fourth place. Uh, probably don't have a chance to finish first there, but if I had a big offensive second half, maybe. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, I hope you have avoided the injury bug, which has plagued uh, Major League Baseball and so many fantasy teams this year. And as an example, we had a fairly serious, fairly important, impactful fantasy injury since last we spoke, which was uh, Alex Gordon suffering a grade two groin strain. And apparently, Jock, he could be out for the rest of the year and not 100% possibly even for the playoffs. There are tremendous implications here, Jock, affecting the Royals in their chase of a division title. It may even affect their ability to get that playoff spot. And, of course, fantasy owners have to replace a $16 to $20 outfielder. Bob Berger touched on the situation in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. So fill us in. Who gets Alex Gordon's playing time? How is that going to affect fantasy races? What do we need to know? Well, the first name that, that pops into both Bob's and my mind is Jared Dyson. Even if he is part-time, his, uh, his speed again becomes a huge fantasy factor, at least based on the past three seasons. Now, at bat-wise, he's a little off his last three seasons, but even as a part-timer, he stole 30, he's stolen 30 bases three years in a row, and he's got 11 already this year. So uh, a, a lot of people, when, when Gordon went down, thought it might be Jared Dyson uh, time. Now, you got Paulo Orlando sitting on the bench, and he's somewhat intriguing and watchable in his own right, at least in deep leagues. Uh, um, and uh, he, he, Orlando's had some pretty decent uh, splits against right-handed pitching. But I think this is a platoon for the most part, and I think Dyson's uh, running game is the standout tool that fantasy owners want to target. And, Jock, Dyson is on the right side of the split here, isn't he? 
Yeah, he is. He's the left-handed hitter. Um, he's got decent numbers against righties, and again, you, he's going to be—he's going to run more against right-handed pitching. Um, I think this is uh, I, again. I think Jared's the one you want to target here. Paulo Orlando actually throughout his career has hit right-handers fairly well, and all three of his home runs this year in the big leagues are against right-handed pitching. But I still think you're right. I think Dyson gets the nod against the the right-handers. A pretty much a straightforward traditional platoon. Possibly, I think occasionally. I don't think it'll it'll necessarily be a straight platoon. I I think you will see Orlando possibly getting some at bats against righties, uh, uh, given his power. He's slugging 456 in 79 at bats. His batting average is uh, 240 against righties. Um, but I think we both like Dyson. And Dyson, we're projecting for 21 more stolen bases, bringing him to 32 for the year. So if stolen bases is a category where you can make a jump, uh, Jared Dyson could be a guy to target. Uh, in a lot of leagues, he'll be taken already, of course. Uh, speaking of injuries, uh, Jock, the Red Sox finally had some good news in that department. Dustin Pedroia will be coming back. He apparently used the all-star break to finish his recovery from that hamstring pull. So he's going to be in the starting lineup on Friday night. Matt Dodge touched on Dustin Pedroia in playing time today. Uh, so whom will Pedroia bump, and how much fantasy relevance does this story have? Well, we all know that uh, Pedroia's playing time is a given. So the question really is what happens to Brock Holt, who's been playing second base almost every day since Pedroia's been out. Holt obviously has a lot of positional versatility. He's played five games at six different spots over the infield and outfield this year. And his 316 batting average in July say he's still producing. He's hitting over 290 for the year. He's going to go back to moving around the diamond, but I think Mike Napoli is the guy who both Matt and I uh, believe could see uh, playing time drop off. Napoli's hitting uh, just a little over 200 from the year, and aside from a brief surge in May where he hit seven homers and batted 240, he's been pretty awful. He's hit just two home runs and batted 180 over his most recent 106 at-bats. He looks like a shadow of his former self, and he might now best be served as a lefty masher off the bench. If that, even it's uh, getting harder and harder in Major League Baseball, especially considering the number of pitchers that most teams like to carry to justify keeping a guy active and on the roster whose sole role is to hit against left-handed pitching. I mean, it can be done, but usually it's done by a guy who has a bit more to offer uh, positionally and so forth. And Napoli's, his catching days are behind him. He certainly can't play anywhere else in the, in, in the infield or outfield. So a left-handed hitting only uh, first baseman is a mighty fine luxury to have, which the Red Sox, I don't know if they can afford. Yeah, well, the one thing Napoli's still doing is popping home runs against lefties. And uh, so, I mean, that's always somewhat valuable. But uh, you're right, uh, his, his regular playing time looks like a thing of the past. It wasn't all good news in Boston on the injury front, of course. Uh, Jock, their best starting pitcher this year, Clay Buchholz, is going to be out what they say is indefinitely, with a flexor strain. Uh, Buchholz, of course, was having a terrific comeback season. Who replaces him in the rotation, and what use will they be? Well, we've mentioned Brian Johnson's uh, call up here for a few weeks now, and it sounds like he's finally uh, going to get the chance to start for the Red Sox either Monday or Tuesday. Uh, he's 24 years old. He doesn't have great velocity, but he has terrific command and pitchability. He's had a 273 ERA in Pawtucket, 1.09 whip, and an 81 to uh, 26 strikeout to walk ratio over 85 innings. He doesn't have number one or number two upside, but most people who've seen him pitch expect him to have a major league career. He's worth a look in AL only and deeper mixed league, particularly with a two-week start on tap. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting aspect of things is counting those weeks with two starts in them. And uh, I guess we're going to see right away whether, uh, whether uh, Brian Johnson has what it takes to be a useful fantasy asset. 
Yeah, he's uh, he's he's had a very good year in uh, in AAA, and uh, again, a lot of people who are looking for mid uh, back of the rotation guys think he's going to have an MLB career. Still another injury to report as Drupal Cabrera of the Rays was placed on the disabled list at the All-Star break. Also with a hamstring injury, he's going to be out at probably about three weeks. They recalled uh, former number one pick Tim Beckham to take uh, Cabrera's roster spot and uh, maybe get a good chunk of the playing time there as well. What do you think we can expect from Tim Beckham? Well, particularly now with Nick Franklin looking completely lost and now demoted, in fact, uh, Beckham looks like he's going to get some of Cabrera's time, most of it. Uh, he's a bit of a mixed bag right now. He didn't hit much for average in his first go-around with Tampa earlier this year. He, hit, he batted 213 in 90, 94 at-bats, and his 67% contact rate gave him problems. He, he did a little better at AAA, hitting 308 with 77% contact over 39 at-bats. But what's intriguing about Beckham are his power and speed. He hit five home runs and swiped three bases in the majors and was putting up similar numbers in Durham. If you can take the B.A. hit, Beckham is interesting. The BaseballHQ.com projection for Beckham's only for 90 more at-bats, which means I think they project that Cabrera's going to be back relatively soon and that uh, when he comes back, he'll retake the job. So be careful about Tim Beckham. There's some batting average issues there, as you mentioned. Uh, in Minnesota, this is quite an interesting story, Jock. Uh, not only is the team doing very well, but all of a sudden... F- after having several years where they sometimes seem to be struggling to fill all the positions on the field with capable players, all of a sudden they're overloaded with capable players. Uh, Oswaldo Arcia is getting red hot at AAA Rochester, and even he's banging on the door for another uh, major league shot after he had some injury problems in the early season and a slump. Now, you discussed this with Brent Hershey and Ray Murphy in your Speculator Trade Deadline Roundtable column, and you noted that Minnesota has a real logjam at left field and DH, and maybe there's a trade possibility here. Fill us in. It's been Miguel Sano's promotion and his early season performance, which has been terrific, along with Eddie Rosario in left field keeping his head above water that has given the Twins these issues. If you remember, Arsha, uh, uh, he hit 13 home runs in August and September last year, and some people predicted big things for him, even though his contact rate and batting average were, uh, were subpar. But Arsha's had issues in the early going before. He, he, he gets injured, he, he struggles, um, and then he gets hot. And now he's hit, uh, he's hit nine home runs in the minors, but eight of them have come, I think, in his last 12, 13 games. I'm looking at his 10-game stretch here, and he's hit six home runs. He's batting 304. He's hitting almost uh, a home run every other night or doing even better than that. Uh, he's a guy who can play left field and DH. Um, obviously, you got uh, Kenis Vargas, who wasn't uh, wasn't particularly good in his stint uh, um, down in in the minors, but this but Arsh is a guy who, um, who who probably needs to needs to be promoted or needs to needs to be somewhere to to get full value for him. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Twins uh, make a deal with somebody here to get some pitching because, as we both know, their bullpen and their starting could use a could use a hit. They're certainly not going to trade Miguel Sano. It's going to be a fixture in Minnesota for years, I suspect. So, if the Twins were trying to make a deal, do you see Arcia being the guy who goes out? Yeah, Arcia seems to be the guy. Although maybe they maybe they target Rosario. Maybe they want uh, Arcia's power in the lineup. But Arcia's been such a hit and miss guy for the last three years in terms of going up and down. He's been pretty volatile. So um, my guess would be they might uh, they might dangle him out there. Yeah, the the problem is who you know you you can dangle a guy, but it's uh, often a little more difficult to get somebody to to snap at the hook. 
on the other hand, Arcia has hit home runs, and certainly there are teams all over baseball who could use an injection of power. Also, Arcia's not a bad defensive player. He's got a hell of an arm out in the outfield. Yeah, he's got all kinds of tools. Um, he's he's always been a very promising guy. The problem he's been is consistently uh, he's had is consistently delivering that promise at the big league level. And Eddie Rosario, I think uh, he had a nice little start. He's had a decent season so far with a two eighty four batting average and four home runs. But boy, if you look at those skills, they just don't look all that strong, do they? No, you're right. I think Rosario's been rushed a little bit. He could actually use a little bit more minor league time. Um, it's a credit to his skills that he's holding his own with with uh, pretty much nothing or almost nothing at AAA. Um, but he's got a he's got a good swing. He's athletic. Uh, doesn't have a lot of patience. Obviously, he's a he's a slasher. Um, but uh, he's 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 done fairly well at the bottom line for uh, for a guy of his inexperience. It's going to be really interesting to watch what the Twins do because I, I don't know that they were expecting to be as competitive as they are this season. I think they might have been looking forward one more year. And now that Alex Gordon's been hurt in Kansas City, which is a real devastating blow for them, as uh, we talked about earlier, not only offensively but defensively, such a good outfielder that maybe uh, now Minnesota may be thinking a little more aggressively about making a run this year. Uh, down in Texas, the scuttlebutt was that the Rangers were going to have to cast around trying to find some starting pitching, but they got some starting pitching. They activated Martin Perez from their own 60-day uh, DL, and he'll make his debut on Friday night against Houston. Uh, he's pitched 26 rehab innings so far, Jock, 4.56 ERA, which is not that great, but he struck out 25 against only three walks, which is really great. You talked about Martin Perez's return in your playing time tomorrow column and the rest of the Texas rotation. We've talked about it before here. Can Martin Perez help fantasy owners and the Rangers? Well, a couple of things. First, he's 14 months off Tommy John surgery, so he's neither being rushed uh, um, or um, or um, given the uh, hope for 18 months um, coming off that sort of an operation. He's never big, been a big velocity pitcher. He's more of a sinker, ground ball guy, dependent on command. Um, but while his BPIs were never that impressive when he was healthy, his bottom line was decent. Uh, so it's possible, but he's, he's really not without risk, by no means a sure thing here. So the question is, would you take a flyer? Um, only if I was pitching desperate right now. Again, you have to look at the Ranger bullpen too, which hasn't been that great. Uh, um, there's not a lot of support there. Their, their defense is pretty decent in the infield, um, and, and that's one of the things that makes uh, Perez at least watchable for now. Little bit of uh, issue with the bullpen as well. They've had uh, some difficulties. We're projecting Martin Perez for five wins the balance of the season. An ERA right around four, just not that great. A 134 whip, not that great. Basically a replacement level pitcher. So if you're expecting huge results from Martin Perez, you might want to temper them a little bit. Uh, you noted in your column that the Rangers rotation as a whole is pretty interesting. Maybe not so much from a fantasy or which guy should I pick up kind of idea, but more what are they going to do to improve at the deadline? Uh, what do you think is going on there? Well, uh, Giovanni Gallardo has been very, very uh, uh, effective in his in, during his time in Texas. He's not really a number one, but he's he's pitched very well. The problem Texas have have is all the the wobbly uh, hurlers behind Gallardo. Um, they've got five, six innings guys like Colby Lewis and Wandy Rodriguez who are who are capable of blowing sky high and ruining both your ERA and WHIP as they've done uh, over the past uh, two weeks. They have they've had a couple of rookies who've pitched over their heads early on that we warned about and have since been demoted in Nick Martinez. 
Martinez and Chichi Gonzalez. Both of these names are likely to return uh, to the majors after a breather. You've got Matt Harrison coming back from three back surgeries in two years. I'm not sure he's going to make it. And of course, you got Perez coming off of injury, and also Derek Holland, who should be back sometime in August. The big question with Texas is, given that they're six, six and a half games out, are they going to give up any of their um, um, highly uh, regarded farm system to get a guy like Cole Hamels or to get Johnny Cueto? The, the indication that their front office is giving is no, that they're going to try to play out the, the string. So um, these guys, the guys I mentioned, are going to be the guys probably that uh, either either take Texas down the stretch and, and help them win or are going to be mediocre. So um, there's opportunity here. I'm, I'm not sure there's, there's any particularly great fantasy bets. I think that's my take too, Jock, that there, there's going to be a lot to watch here, but there's not going to be a lot to do here. Maybe if you're in a very deep American League-only type situation where you just need some starts or you need some innings because the standards are going to be a little lower, you might want to kind of glance at what they're doing down there. But, uh, you know, speaking as somebody who has no uh, dog in the fight whatsoever, Jock, it seems to me that they would be making a pretty foolhardy move if they traded away you know, any number of top prospects in their system to get, you know, a rental of Johnny Cueto or a year and a half of, uh, of Cole Hamels, because even if they make the playoffs this year, that pitching rotation is not going to take them deep into the playoffs. Yeah, and I think that's the point. Um, you can acquire a, a Cole Hamels or a Johnny Cueto, but that one acquisition isn't going to win you a division. And when you look down at the depth in that starting pitching staff and the bullpen, that's not a playoff caliber uh, pitching staff. Right, and the the financial argument always is that the teams do very, very well if they make long playoff runs because most of the money that comes into the playoff system goes to the owners rather than to the players under the terms of the uh, CBA. And it's an awful lot of future to spend, uh, even if you get Cole Hamels and he wins you that play-in game or something like that, then you get a, maybe an extra home game or two, and, and uh, there's just not enough, as you say, depth in that rotation to carry them you know, all the way into the World Series, which is where the big payday is. Yeah, and, and the players, the, the prospects that the Rangers would be asked for are pretty significant guys. I mean, if you've looked at the, pre, the uh, midseason top 50s offered up by Baseball HQ and Baseball America and some of these other uh, 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 minor league eva evaluators, um, these guys, uh, there's, there's three or four of them in there, and I, I certainly, if I were in the Rangers front office, I would be arguing against giving up any of these names. I agree with you. I wouldn't give up any of them. Uh, Jock, thanks a million. We really appreciate you taking the time. We'll talk to you again next week, and enjoy the start of the second half. Sounds good, Peter. You too. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and a speculator columnist at the site as well. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd it's Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. First off, Stengel was, to me, one of the more misunderstood figures in baseball because of his time with the Mets and because he understood what his role was, and his role was to entertain the media. And, and I think uh, his baseball knowledge and his, his general acumen was really lost in a lot of that caricature. Okay? He became a caricature uh, of himself. And... Uh, for the players, though, it was interesting. You know, he'd get you in spring training every year, and he'd had the same routine. I mean, with the Mets, I mean, he really started with the basics. I mean, you know, he went over to the bag and he reached in there and he pulled out a ball and he said, "This is a baseball." That's where we started. Baseball HQ Radio. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed, like these features. In the GM's office column, co-general managers Ray Murphy and Brent Hershey look at some halfway hindsight. In playing time tomorrow, Christopher Olson covers the National League West, including the trade likelihoods of Carlos Gomez, Troy Tulowitzki, and Justin Upton, and how the rosters will change if those trades happen. And Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage looks at Nolan Arenado, Ben Revere, Carlos Martinez, and others. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information, like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment columns, performance validation in Facts and Flukes, roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow. We have daily matchup coverage, team reports, minor league scouting, and much more. And we also have great tools like our projections and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your league or the daily fantasy game. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN.com. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be here, Patrick. Uh, You had a column at FantasyAlarm.com that I hope everybody gets a chance to read. It's called, I Was Wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong, and it was a story about the projection errors you made from the what your spreadsheets told you preseason to uh, when you get to the All Star break. You compare and find out where you made some egregious misses. It's very unusual for guys who do projections to focus on their misses. They usually focus on their hits. So why did you do this, and why did you write this column? I wrote it, and once you know, people will talk a little bit about it. I'm sure, and once people read it, they'll see that. It was more of an examination of my process than it necessarily was three or four or five or six of my projections that, that I'll say so far haven't been correct because we do still have some season left. And as you'll see with some of these players, I'm not that far off, but it was more of, I, I kind of redid it in backwards. I thought of where my process was wrong in a couple of areas and found some players that would best exemplify that. Heck, I, I could have done the same thing, and I, I could have written an article about where my process was right and talked about players that I hit on, but that's, you know, people are going to get distracted. Oh, this guy's just, you know, this guy's just pumping his own fist and, and patting his own back and get distracted from the point. If you, uh, you know, put a clever title and, you know, pretend you're Fonzie and you can't say I was wrong, people will get, you know, catch their eye and they'll read the column, you know, talking about the, you know, talking about A.J. Pollock and Anthony Rizzo, guys that I happen to get right, you know, the mindset of reading the column is, uh, this guy is just, you know, blowing blowing smoke and not, uh, you know, not really investigating his process, which should make him and us a better fantasy player. Pumping your own fist and scratching your own back makes you a pretty limber guy. Uh, uh, what is the main source of projection error in the process that you discovered, aside from injury, of course? I tend to be aggressive on playing time on some people. It's it's not a skills thing, but I think uh, playing time is as much integral to a projection as the skills and is, in, in, in fact, a way to differentiate the player. So I think in a couple of instances, I was probably a little too aggressive uh, with playing time, not allowing for the downside. And I think the other the other area is sometimes, especially when you have to do so much and it has to be automated and someone like myself that needs to produ- produce a product once a week, you get, not only say blinded by the numbers, 
but you don't get the opportunity to really examine each player on an individual basis. And I think going back, there were some things about some a couple of players that I missed. And I go I go back and I profile every player, so I do look at the numbers. But I, for whatever reason, there was a couple of players that looking at the numbers behind the numbers, I missed the downside potential related to the projection. It was we talk about the projection is just a set of numbers. It's a range. It's as important to understand the upside and the downside and, and, and which is more or less likely to happen and, and bid accordingly. On a couple of players, I regretfully missed more bad than good than what could happen. And I'm especially, you know, sort of upset at myself, so to speak, because these are players that I became associated with in the spring. So I really should have taken a better look at them, knowing that, that people are going to sort of associate me with Cole Calhoun and associate me with Brandon Moss because my numbers were higher on them than other people's. I should have done a better job of making sure I was right and noticed, and then I may have noticed some of the uh, nuances behind the scenes that maybe I should have tempered my expectations a little more than I did. Well, since you mentioned it, uh, one of your uh, errors that you drew attention to was Cole Calhoun. You projected him to be about a $24 player. Instead, he's a little bit above half that. What was the source of error with Cole Calhoun? I was mentioned aggressive on playing time. I was very aggressive on playing time, and it turns out I'm not horribly off on that. Of course, there's still 10 more weeks. I had him for about 690 plate appearances, which is a lot more than than most people, and he's on a pace for about 670. And the difference being he hasn't hit leadoff all year. He's hit a little bit down in the order, which is taken away from some of the plate appearances. Uh, if you take a lot of the other projections that were out there and just prorate them to my playing time, it wasn't as if I was expecting a huge performance uptick in, in, in Cole Calhoun. It was just more of the uh, just playing more and hitting in front of Pujols and and Mike Trout, I did expect to score some more runs, so I think the only manual adjustment I made to his projection was I gave him a little bit more runs because he, due to the situation. But that's something I do to a few other players. It wasn't just him, so I felt it was warranted. And it just turns out he he's just not hitting for the power that he's hit in previous seasons. His contact rate is down a bit, but it's it's within the the normal variance of, of of what a player's contact rate, you know, according to his average should be. And same with his power. It's not that it's not hugely low. He's got 10 homers, and if you pro that rate that to my projection and that should be 19 and I had him for 23, and if, you know, if at the end of the season someone hits 19 and you said he's going to hit 23, I don't think anybody would be, you know, calling for your so-called expert card <laughs> to be turned in because of that projection. So I don't think that's horribly wrong. He's just isn't hitting the power that he's hit in previous season. That's what I missed is his home run per fly ball and his fly ball percent, to me anyway, are both in that range where more down, more bad can happen than good when your home run per fly ball is just a little above average and your fly ball percent is below average and your home park is Angel Stadium, there's little margin of error. And it just turns out that each of those metrics was down just a bit. And when you put them together, his power, and you know, in, in less contact, it just turns out that he's just hitting for less, less power. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, factor that how 
the various individual skills metrics, when you look at them in isolation, don't seem to really matter that much, but they compound one another. You talk about a guy whose fly ball percentage is down a couple of points, his home run per fly ball percentage is down a couple of points, his contact rate is down a couple of points, and when you multiply those things together, which is what you have to do, all of a sudden you take three little uh, amounts and multiply them together, ask any credit card company, it adds up. Right. (laughs) You also pointed out a batting order issue with Cole Calhoun, and that had some pretty outsized effects as well right now the other thing you know we talk about his power being down his runs are way down which is kind of curious because he has been hitting in front of mike trout and albert pujols who have hit more home runs than any other pair of hitters on any one team uh it's just there's been a little bit of dumb luck when when he has gotten in base his obp is down a bit uh but i think you know the power being down but the runs being down as well, I think it's an often overlooked stat as far as you know value in a vacuum goes. The twenty six dollars to the the thirteen or fourteen that he actually earned. Uh, a lot of my numbers came from runs. I thought he was going to lead the league in runs scored, uh, but yeah. The, so the was moved in the. I mean, he wasn't moved horribly. He was hitting cleanup or hitting third for a while. So, but that you know that's that's enough to get twenty fewer plate appearances. And enough to not be able to benefit when you're hitting behind Trout and Pujols instead of in front of Trout Trout and Pujols. You're not going to get the benefit of trotting across uh, home plate uh, as quite as often as otherwise. Another player that you mentioned in the column and uh, just a moment ago when you were summarizing the column, uh, Brandon Moss of the Cleveland Indians. You projected him to be a mid-teens dollar value. He's been down around five bucks. Yeah, now the... The thing there, I think we've mentioned this before in different conversations, is he was driven by park factors. And the thing with park factors is there's a lot of mistakes with park. There's a lot, there's a lot of wrong with park factors, but it's just odd in that it's still better to use them than not. So on, you know, on paper, Moss is moving from a stadium that killed left-handed power to one that sort of covertly increases it uh progressive field so the engine pumped up his power by about 20 percent and that was enough to put him ahead of uh, higher in my rankings than it than other other similar you know pundits rankings and he should have at least hit for a similar average if not a little higher and his average has been on the downslide but uh, you still want to look at a a history he had hit for a higher average in, in previous seasons this year the average is down as well but the uh the miss with moss and this is a little bit probably more relevant or I'm, I'm a little more aware of it now working more in the daily game and being more in tune with how to deal with splits in that and brandon Moss's, and this is what i missed we're talking about missing before when i profiled him his splits are just crazy. They're just weird in that his home away splits are just nuts in that he's always hit better away from home no matter where home is. And his lefty-righty splits are tending towards he hits lefties better than righties. And I know we've talked in the past about a ta- the time when these sort of splits are real. And he's got the number of plate appearances where it's awful close to where he should own his splits. And... I think that applying a park factor to a left-handed batter that has reverse splits, he might not enjoy or realize the full factor, the full 
impact of that park factor, which is maybe maybe why the power hasn't materialized as expected. I guess you know the the error I made with with Moss was not being acutely aware of the bizarre splits and 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 not adjusting for them properly. In the you know I do have you know, I do incorporate splits into my into my work, but I think the fact that he changed teams could have screwed skewed things up well screwed things too <laughs> skewed things up a little bit and again because he was a guy that I knew people that followed my work were going to be higher on than other people I should have taken the time to really look into it and I should have noticed those splits being as, as wacky as they were and at least put the warning out that we're not you know the, the numbers say he's going to hit 32 homers but you know there's possibility won't and here's why and i don't think i did a good enough job doing that and of course one of the disadvantages of issuing projections in general and this is something ron shander will tell you if you ask him as well is that you may know that brandon moss's range of possible outcomes even if you did the work to do the splits analysis and so forth is somewhere in the 25 to 35 range, but you got to put one number down on that sheet. And so you, you come up with 32 for, for, a, for a home run total. He's going to be well short of that. But in a lot of instances, you're going to get uh, hammered for being, as you said before, four short on Cole Calhoun's home runs, but four short of a 23 home run projection is actually within normal bounds. It's, it's really kind of a... Uh, an outcome of the need to pin it down to one number rather than being allowed to put down a range of home runs. Right. And I think with Moss, I mean, he's, he's hitting for decent power. It's to me, it's the batting average is more than the, the, the real big miss as far as why his dollar value isn't matching what I, what I projected. And we know with batting, you know, we talk about all the time, you know, one, one bleeding eye single a week is, is, you know, 50 points in the batting average. And we're not quite, at that point, but I mean, I look at Bron. I look at some what other people had for Brandon Moss, and people mostly projected him in the 240 to 250 range for batting average. I think I may have been even a little higher. And he, you know, hitting only 220. He's got 14 homers, which, you know, all right. So let's prorate that. Whatever. It's not quite doubled. It's 25, and I expected a little over 30. So yeah, it's a miss, but it's you didn't lose your league because of of the, the of Brandon Moss's power. You probably bummed out about the batting average, so yeah. I it's but um, you know the the thing too is he's potentially gonna play more. Although Oakland played him against uh, left-handers a little bit last year, but with Cleveland, he's playing a lot more against uh, left-handers. Maybe they're aware of the splits. He's already got more at bats versus lefties than he had. When he was with Oakland, as a matter of fact, he's, he's trailing behind with at bats against righties. So apparently, you know, Cleveland is, is aware of his splits. Plus, he's hitting 190 against righties this year as a left-handed batter. Now, as a DFS player, you know, when you do a Cleveland stack, you just automatically put Moss in there because he's a lefty. That might not be the the greatest idea anymore, is to because uh, he isn't hitting right-handers all that well. And even over his, even last year, he had the power against righties but he didn't hit for a good batting average. So he might be a player to think twice about before including him in a, uh, in a daily stack. He is an interesting split in, in the sense that you just mentioned that his batting average against left-handed pitching, which should be down, is actually quite good at 275-ish. 
versus 190 when he's batting against right-handers whom he should be killing. But his home runs are all almost all coming against right-handed pitching. So it's power against righties at a bad average and good average against lefties with a poorish sort of power output. It's a it is a very odd situation. Right now in this situation, I don't have it in front of me, but what I usually the, 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 my go-to in this situation is is contact, is strikeouts, because you know, we, as we know, batting average, especially in a small sample, is just can fluctuate so much, and that 274, 275 can be good BABIP, and the 190 could be low BABIP. I want to know what his contact rate is in each scenario, his his true skill level to see to check that out. Like I said, unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me, but that's what I'll be doing with Brandon Moss is is to try to decide how much, at least this season, how much of the weird splits are are just a small sample size, and and how much of it is real. Like I said, because he does have the plate appearances, and and then temper that with 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 progressive, and maybe he's not going to get that boost that I thought he was going to get from power from the left side. I do happen to have the stats in front of me. His strikeout rate against right-handers is about 35% or so, and against uh, left-handers, not not too far different, uh, maybe 25%. So I guess that is a significant enough difference that one would want to be be aware of it at least. Well, it, and it also it, it, it tilts toward the numbers being at least partially real. If you're striking out that huge amount against righties, and that's you know that's the better side theory for the platoon advantage, and you're striking out fewer times against lefties. That, that that's that's huge. So that yeah, Brandon Moss is a player that likely does own some reverse splits, and I don't know that I, like I said, because he if he if he had stayed with the same team, it kind of gets because the park factors stay close to the same. I think it just gets absorbed. This it gets absorbed into the engine. Mm-hmm. But players that change teams and therefore now have that additional factor of, of new park factors being put into the projection, I think it might skew things more than it should. And I, I know we've mentioned in the past that one of my pet projects is going to be looking at players that change teams and, and do park factors need to be applied, you know, globally to them. We, we talked, I know, in the preseason, Russell Martin and, and Adam LaRoche were a couple of guys that we talked about as far as going from bad we're, bad parks to good parks as far as hitting goes. And uh, I think I, I, it's just another reason why I need to do this study in the offseason to uh, figure out the better way to handle park factors. And for sure, Russell Martin's uh, really enjoyed his park change to Rogers Center, which is a, a hitter's environment. But Adam LaRoche, who moves to one of the best hitting environments in all of baseball in Chicago on the south side, uh, has really realized no benefit at all. It's very weird. Right. Now, there, you know, there's always other factors. Is, is, is the fact that LaRoche isn't playing the field and is not playing DH and he's older, uh, you know, and the team isn't doing well where Toronto's doing well. And there, there's, you know, it's more than these are human beings. They're more than just numbers. But yeah, I mean, they can, you can't, we talk about cherry picking, can't just cherry pick these two guys, but they happen to be on the top of my head about players that, that did have situations. And which is why I need to go back a few years and check to see in previous seasons, just players that change, you know, both good and bad. Uh, relative to everybody else, do they do they realize the same park effect? Um, and I, th- I think it's important because uh, just in general, park factors are just one of those things that just I kind of keep in my head. I just keep spinning. I we I, I think I've talked off the record to you about a project I'm working on, and that uh, our our park factors that are currently 
in season? Are they actionable? We talk about Petco Park being more of a home run park the first half of the season. Was that a fluke or is that real? And should we adjust how we think in season about park factors? Because we think about whenever we make a trade, it doesn't have to be DFS in a daily lineup. It could be just when we want to make a trade for a player. It's part of how we look at that player going forward. And if we have an expectation based upon a, a park factor that we thought about in the spring and the park is indeed playing differently, we need to adjust our expectation for that player. Uh, so that's kind of a, a project that's ongoing that I should have online fairly soon is, is it necessary to on the fly or not so much on the fly, but in season, uh, put an adjustment where the player is playing and a certain park is playing better or worse than anticipated. And is it actionable? to adjust our expectations, you know, based on half a season's worth of, of data. Another factor that came into it when, while you were talking about that was when a player moves from one park to another, from one team to another, he also moves us from one division to another in the case of LaRoche and uh, Russell Martin. And Russell Martin moved into a pretty fun hitting environment in the American League East. And uh, except for the home park, the uh, the American League Central, where LaRoche found himself, has some pretty big parks and some pretty tough pitching. Right. Now, I the first part of that I've addressed on Baseball HQ when I did some composite park factors, where I what I would actually do is take the player's schedule or the team schedule and their away schedule and, and came up with a weighted average park factor that they would have for that entire season. And it turned out that it, it what it did is it, it made the highs a little bit lower and the lows a little bit higher, but the park sort of stayed in the same order. The team sort of stayed in the same order, but but the extremes don't get pl- applied as as much. I, I would the best way to put it. Now, but the other part about it is you know the strength of the division as far as pitching goes, and and it's even the number the number of lefties in the division, the strength of the bullpen in the division. That I haven't. I, I, don't, I haven't accounted for, but it is something that when you need you know, look on a player on a on a macro on a macro on on a granular basis, you know, has that situation changed? And I don't know the answers exactly to that, but sure, it's there's many more factors involved than just park. It also could be in the batting order and expectations. And you know, Toronto doesn't care if you strike out as much as Pittsburgh might. So maybe maybe Martin just is going up to the plate with a somewhat freer you know, freer sense of, of in, in his head, and he's just you know nosing. You just swing, whereas other teams are more you know two strikes, choke up in the bat, and go the other way, and a player may not be used to that. So there's that con- context as well. Uh, you know, not saying that that's what the problem is with LaRoche in Chicago, but uh, there's there's definitely different philosophies when you go from team to team to team, and that depending on the player, it could impact his performance. And of course, they have relationships with their hitting coaches and and with the uh, management. And maybe they their wife really likes living in Pittsburgh and doesn't want to move to Toronto. Not that that's the case with Russell Martin or maybe Adam Laroche's kids are well established in school, and that's a source of of uh, some uh, potential underperformance. The, like you said, these guys are human beings, and it's not just a question of moving a robot from you know environment A to environment B and and adjusting for the robot's performance over his career there's a lot of other stuff going on in the background and i think it it behooves us in the off season when we when we as consumers are looking at the projections of guys like you as producers to say okay the the projection incorporates some kind of park factor but 
as a consumer, I need to be maybe a little more aware of what else is going on in there that the projection engine, to this point at least, doesn't capture. Well, yeah, what the park factor says is if the player hits the ball exactly like he has in the past, he'll get better outcomes because of the park. But what we don't necessarily account for is, is he going to hit the ball? I mean, course is great, but how many catchers have come up over the years with such low contact rates that aren't able to take advantage of the uh of the great dimension ben petrick and all these other other guys in in, in coors field so if a player's skills are deteriorating or if he's not hitting the ball in the air as much if he's not making his the contact is in his heart uh he's not going to realize the park factor advantage if he's not hitting the ball exactly the same see that's that's the thing you know the same exact hit in you know a good park for home runs and a neutral park for home runs and a weak and a bad park for home runs, you know he's going to get 25 in one, 20 in the next, and 15 in the last. But that assumes that the the same exact he hits the ball in the same exact manner. That's what we don't know is 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 LaRoche not making the, the same contact as he. It's, it's not that he's hitting the ball exactly like he was in Washington. My guess is it's more than just park and that he's actually uh, his his batting profile he's just not hitting the ball in the same manner that he did with the nationals and it's not just the uh the park it's some other things going on finally in this area you lump together resney castillo dalton pompey and jose peraza uh, you're fairly well known for being aggressive about projecting young players and in uh, the cases of castillo and pompey you were mid-teens to low-teens dollar value both these guys were big negative producers and peraza of course hasn't played at all Right. Now, we, we talked about this in terms of, of fab and fab theory about taking a chance on minor leaguers. And it's, it's sort of the same thing. It, this is, I, I think this actually sort of, uh, bleeds over from my high stakes competition where you sort of have to take a chance on these minor leaguers in order to compete at, in the high stakes. It's, it's, it's part of the game. And I've been saying this a lot lately that I don't like very much, but a lot of our decisions are, we hope the player does well as opposed to we think the player will do well. And it's just become part of the game and you sort of have to adjust with it. And that was the, uh, the thinking there, but, uh, it's, there were different situations with each with Peraza. Uh, Jace Peterson just as the placeholder decided that he didn't want to be a placeholder. He wanted to be a regular and he had a, a great beginning to the season. Now, first impressions are interesting. If you take a look at what Jace Peterson's done lately, it's, it's not all that great. Matter of fact, he has more caught steals than he has stolen bases. So I, it wouldn't shock me if Peraza does get a chance if Peterson continues to slide. So I'm not, I'm not giving up on Peterson just yet. Um, and at the time, the word was Atlanta planned on promoting him after a month, month and a half in the minor leagues. So it wasn't uh, a shot in the dark. That was the, you know, they weren't bound to that, but that was what they were said they were going to do. And, uh, Pompey, we, you know, we, we saw him in, in the Arizona Fall League. And it's not so much that we saw him and therefore we want to judge an opinion, but he, because people did see him, they were aware of him. And that pumps up his value. He did look good, but you don't want to, you know, judge a player's performance on a couple of weeks in the Arizona Fall League. But the point being, a lot of people saw him and a lot of my fellow writers would therefore write about him. So he was known. So you kind of had a, jump him up on your list a little bit if you wanted to get him and as i said i got him but i did have the discipline that if i didn't get him as my 
fifth outfielder, I wasn't going to stretch and make him my third or fourth. So if he didn't perform well, I wasn't, you know, it was easy to replace him. It did get to a point where he was being drafted as a third outfielder in a lot of mixed leagues. And, you know, I, it, it was more when I, when that happened than I was in the league. It was just more, oh, oh well, I'm not going to get him. You know, good, good luck with that sort of thing. If he does well for you, that means he's going to do well for me on my five other teams. Uh, but I, I project him that, that well again. It's just you have to have the discipline to know that it's, you're taking a chance. And Castillo, uh, that was probably the mistake. If I, if there was an actually a mistake involved and I should, should have recognized just how crowded the Red Sox outfielder was. And even though he had the, uh, the money, there, money, they don't care necessarily about the money. They want to put the best team on the field, which seems funny now because they're not doing so well, but at least back in the spring. And I, I may have been, you know, I was talking about him being Starling Marte as an upside, which is pretty aggressive. So, uh, again, I didn't get him everywhere. I didn't overspend to get him. But, you know, there's one thing in my own game, you know, part of what I, I make a living out of telling other or helping other people, I'm not so sure that I did a good enough of a job relaying the potential downside to these guys. I mean, I knew it, but I may not have done a good of a job doing that so that was sort of my uh the take-home message with those guys i think you summed it up with a really neat turn of phrase in the column the hobby has changed you wrote and sometimes decisions have to be made in case they're right as opposed to because you think they'll be right yeah that's what we just mentioned and, and it's a it's i don't like it because you know i you'd like to think that you can get the edge by the analysis but just the way We've talked about you know, reserve lists, and there's just so many ways that taking chances, that you have a lot of parachutes out there now, and you can be as safe as you want. And I, I, actually, I think that this is a, a reason why some of the more people that have sort of weaned on the uh, auction format, NL, AL, NL only, where you're supposed to be so risk-averse, they haven't converted as easily to the mixed draft format and had the same success as they might have had in, in some other, in some other formats. I'm thinking, you know, high stakes, although there's a whole lot of people in the industry that are doing well in the high stakes. So I don't think you can use that argument, but I do think there's some, uh, something to be said. You hear a lot of people giving advice and it's always, you know, conservative, be patient in this day and age. Sometimes you have to be smart about it, but you have to be willing you have to be willing to take a chance in certain situations. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt talking with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, you had a long Twitter feed uh, just the other day looking at all the positions in the game and uh, assessing who was the top performer, well, the top 10 or 15 performers at each position before the break and who your projection engine says will be the top performers after the break, uh, starting with starting pitching, the most Obvious thing was no Jose Fernandez, no Matt Harvey on your uh, performers for the second half. Yeah, I got called on that with some of the followers as well. Matt Harvey's easy. It's just the, the Mets are going to go to us, or at least they say they're going to a six-man rotation and temper his innings. And it's it's just enough. I only put 15 out there. You have to remember that if you're the number 17 or 18 pitcher, you're still pretty darn good. Uh, innings... Give one guy 10 innings, take 10 innings away from the next, and you can flip-flop six or eight spots in the rankings. But, yeah, I have to have a cutoff somewhere because Twitter only allows you 140 characters. So I forget how many, if it was 10 or 15 starting pitchers that I, 15. That I put out there. But the, 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 
the number of innings, fewer number of innings for Harvey. Plus, he's shown to be human. You know, he he he's shown that he yeah he's still very good, but he is coming back from Tommy John, and he had had a, he had a, one or two outings that weren't you know incredibly sparkling, and it has infected his numbers. I don't I don't think he's going to be a three five ERA. I think I have him as a two nine or three zero ERA going forward. So it's just still pretty, pretty, pretty good. But between, I might be a little more bearish on him than some, just because uh, I don't want to. I'm not giving him extra points because he's Matt Harvey. Uh, he fell. I think he was just just 17 to 20 range. And Fernandez, similar to Harvey. You know, this is gonna be a hard argument to uh, to get out there because he's looked really, really good in his two starts, and they let him go seven innings. Fernandez in his last start. So you can't even say that they're going to temper his innings very much. But I just think we have to remember that this is a guy that had a, a shortened re- rehab. He had regular rehab from, from Tommy John, but it, it was an in-season sort of one as opposed to Harvey, who had the entire offseason. And if Harvey had some struggles after his first initial adrenaline-driven uh, early starts, I, th- I think we can expect Fernandez to have some struggles over the second half, and he's not going to continue to, uh, you know, look like the old Jose Fernandez. Of course, Gennady has uh, Philadelphia, which is probably going to be another really good game and, and make my argument look even sillier. But by the end of the year, I just I I think we need to temper our expectations a bit on you know on 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 the wonder that is Jose Fernandez. Also, Miami has nothing to gain by throwing him out there for a lot of innings. They may just decide we're going nowhere, whether he pitches, you know, 110 innings or whether he pitches 88 innings. Well, we'll err on the side of caution, and, and they might as well. So there's some playing time risk from that angle as well. You uh, had a list of relievers. This was the most volatile of the lists, uh, by which I mean that most of the guys in the pre-All-Star break list are on the post-All-Star break list in all the other positional categories, as we'd expect. Uh, but Juris Familia is out, A.J. Ramos is out, Zach Britton is out, David Robertson in Chicago is off the list, and Dellen Betances, who's off the list for obvious reasons, and Araldus Chapman, uh, Greg Holland, Ken, uh, Kenley Jansen, Uehara, and Andrew Miller are all in. Again, it seems for fairly, fairly obvious reasons. Is this a an indicator of just how volatile this whole relief pitching business is? Yeah, absolutely. I, my my confidence level on on the closer list is is next to nil. I think I you know in the spring I will. I think I'll make the same bet with every year with somebody, and that I'll let them pick five closers that they think will lead the league in saves and then I'll take the field and I'll win that bet more often than not. You know, it's, it, it's just, that's the, the nature of the beats as far as closing goes. And, you know, who knows how many saves a particular closure is going to get and the ratios and, and the whatnot. So I would, as I, people that would quit, why isn't my close? It was always a guy that they had and they, you know, being, you know, sensitive to the fact or, you know, mad at the fact that I didn't have their closer on my list. Don't worry. It's, don't worry if I did. You know, if your closer isn't on anybody's top ten list, you have no idea what's going to happen. How many saves you're going to get? There is some historical uh, basis for guessing. I mean, even even a guy like Ken Crimble, and I know bad teams get saves and that sort of thing, but there's still some historical consistency amongst how many saves teams get. And Atlanta got more saves over the past few years than San Diego did. And I think it's it's dropped, not only Kimbrell is allowing a few more hits this year as well, 
But he's not in the top ten, and, and people want to know where he was. And it's just based upon San Diego's history and the fact that he's a little bit more human this year, Kimbrell fell out of the top ten. But again, give him one more save and give the number ten guy one fewer save and and he's now in the he's now in the rankings. So it's uh there's still, you know, there's still a lot of very good closers out there. Zach Britton wasn't on the list. I'm not trading Zach Britton if I own him. It's just that's just the way it worked out. I did a study of where saves come from for baseballhq.com either in the preseason this year or late last year. And um the question that I wanted to answer is are you better off with a closer on a poor team because they play more low margin games or on a good team because they win more games? And the answer was you want a closer on a good team because they win more games. And on average, 50% of wins in the major leagues include saves. Yeah, I, I did a similar study and I found the range to be 45 to 55% of a team's wins have a save associated with it. And it, that was somewhat random from year to year so a team that has 80 wins but 55 percent of which were saved and teams that has 100 wins but 45 percent of which were saved their save totals could be fairly similar and it's just within the range of variance on the catcher list uh, i know some people responded by noting yasmani grandal isn't on it catcher is interesting in that there's some some a couple of guys that are healthy now and that that, that weren't healthy over the first half and and what I'd like to say about this list, and the, the answer might come up depending on who you ask about on the list going forward, is is what I'd like to say about spreadsheets, and I've said this all along, is spreadsheets can do something that you and I and the people listening have some difficulty doing, and that's ignore recency bias. And, and Grandel's having a, a wonderful first half. There's no doubt about it. I think he has 14 homers and hitting near the top of the order. Uh, but and he, you know, he's been a good prospect, et cetera, but the numbers – aren't this good and i think we do need to expect some pullback towards his career numbers and the, the spreadsheet does that if, if you just arbitrarily do a ranking without looking at the numbers and, and see how well he's done and or just remember how well he's done he's probably going to be higher on the list um i, I some it bothers me in that yeah i, I know people expect to Interject by how do you feel he's going to do? I've actually built that into the spreadsheet as we've talked about with when players' skills stabilize. So that's part of the projection. So because that's built in, I'm less likely to move a guy. It just, it just turns out that history says Grandal's not this good. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, we need to see it before we expect it. And he's, I guess, could be an example of a player that, that, that I'll be known, and I don't say known for, but if, uh, if, if people trade Grandal or trade for Grandal based upon his numbers, I, you know, I could get some emails at the end of the season. At the first base position, uh, Mark Teixeira and Adam Lind fall off the list from the pre-All-Star break, both having really nice first halves. And uh, drawing in, uh, Miguel Cabrera's off too for injury reasons, and drawing in Edwin Encarnacion, who missed some games in the first half, and obviously if you assume he's going to play his regular contingent, he's a top 10 guy. Uh, Eric Hosmer of Kansas City gets onto the list, and here's the surprise, Brandon Moss, the guy we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I think that ha that that it's what they're doing. What I'm doing there is carrying over my high expectation from a baseline, because this whole expectation is based off of my initial expectation. Then it's a weighted average with what he's done. So the Moss expectation, I think, is is residual 
based upon how I thought he was going to do in the beginning of the season. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to back away from it. Then that's what the numbers say, then what they, he should do. Uh, and again, I may be miss, miss analyzing the split data a little bit, but, um, we shall, he's playing. He is playing the, uh, he's not a platoon player. So a lot of this has to do with at bats. Well, you know, with leaned, leaned is a platoon player and it could just be that his, if his performance falls off just a little bit and does what he's supposed to do, then the fact that he's not playing as much hurts him. He's, he's now playing his performance is better than expected, which is making up for the fact that he does sit out against some lefties and gets fewer at bats. I don't remember exactly, but I think, I think with Teixeira, I probably tempered his playing time a bit, which I'm not sure is fair, but I think that you sort of have to. And even, even costing, not even docking somebody 20 at bats over the second part of the season is enough. To, to drop you, you know, number 5 to 15 in these sort of rankings are just so close. So I wouldn't read too much into it. If Teixeira stays healthy, he's a top, you know, 5, 10 first baseman. Is he going to stay, you know, if you think he's going to stay healthy, then ignore my rankings, he's fine. At second base, uh, some hot starts. Uh, Logan Forsyth of the Rays, uh, Howie Kendrick of the Dodgers doing well, and uh, DJ LeMahieu in Colorado all doing well, but they don't make your second-half list. Instead, we get veterans. Ben Zobrist, Brandon Phillips of the Reds, which might surprise some people, and here's the big name on the second-half list, Robinson Cano, who's having a terrible year. Right, again, it's the whole, it's the recency. Those, yeah, I, thought, I thought those names may come up, which is where the, you know, the, the recency bias goes in the other direction, too. We... People are ranking Grandal because it was a great first half, and people are docking Cano because of his horrible first half. And I, I'm just more willing to trust a, a career's worth of data than I am at this point, what, 14 weeks' worth. It's incorporated into it because if, if Cano was doing what Cano's supposed to do, he'd be at the top of the list, but he's not quite at the top of the list. He's down a bit. Uh, so I, I, depending on the situation... I would trade for for a Robinson Cano if my team's not doing so well, and I need a player out there that, that can upgrade uh, a position and and give me a, a chance to make up some ground. Uh, Lemayhew's interesting in that he his his uh, he's hitting second, which is improving his runs and RBIs. And I might my initial expectation for him probably had a lot fewer runs in RBIs and that's bleeding over into it and that's one that I similar to how I talked about Calhoun I maybe should have looked at LeMahieu's runs and expe- runs expectation and up that a bit because he's hitting higher up in the order and Phillips is is another guy we expected him to be hitting sixth or seventh he's he's just getting more plate appearances than we we expected and hitting higher up in the order those extra 15 or 20 plate appearances and he's playing well uh, is all you need. And second base isn't the greatest of position, so uh, it doesn't take much to get you in on the list. Yeah, the question of whether to acquire a guy like Robinson Cano is always interesting, and I think you hit the nail on the head. If you need to catch some lightning in a bottle, you might as well bet on some lightning that has you know hit some buildings at one time or another during his career. At third base, uh, Todd, Evan Longoria, who's been a fixture as a third base all-star level player, is off the list after the first half, and Miguel Sano draws on. It's, it's, it's difficult with, with, with Sano, and you know, we're relying on the MLEs and the small amount of time that he had at the major league level. 
saw an interesting stat. I think it was from our mutual friend Corey Schwartz on Twitter in that uh, Sano's exit velocity off the bat is just through the roof. Now, that wasn't Corey's quote, but he retweeted it, and he did say that it's only a short sample, but he did say that this this metric stabilizes very quickly. So there's a pretty good chance that it's real. And all the studies aren't out there yet, but I think we're going to find out that a, a high exit velocity off the bat's pretty good. So I felt comfortable leaving leaving Sano where he was. The uh, again, we're re- I'm relying a little bit on on the the MLEs to 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 pull through for me on that one. And um, not so sure with Lingori is such a weird player in general. And for years we've seen, you know, what 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 would this guy do if he stayed healthy? Well, he stayed healthy, and he's just been me- not mediocre. But it just hasn't been that great. And I think some of the context, and we didn't, not that we expected the Rays to score a whole lot of runs, but their offense is, I think, even a little bit worse than we may have thought. And I, he's probably just, you know, a few, a few less runs in RBIs than some of the other guys is all you need to drop yourself off this list. At shortstop, Brandon Crawford had a terrific first half. And completely out of uh, left field, I hate to say it, but uh, just completely unexpected that Brandon Crawford would hit for this much power and be so effective as a fantasy player. He's not in the second half list, but Wilmer Flores of the Mets and Carlos Correa of the Houston Astros are, although Correa is fairly far down the list, especially compared to the hype. Yeah, well, shortstop, this is probably the weakest list, and I'm actually a little surprised that Crawford's fallen because I'm actually a little bit higher on Crawford than some other people were, at least over the first half. And I'm, he's a guy that I, I want to go back and check to make sure that something weird didn't happen or maybe it's plate appearances, I'm not sure, because just shortstop is such a weak position. But, um, yeah, Correa is interesting in that, again the, again, the whole recency bias and how well he's done, it's the power. And you want we, you may want to say, well, the, the power's come out of nowhere in the pros. He, he had some power in AAA before he came up. So we can't just say that since he's come to Houston, that the power has suddenly manifested because he did have, he hit some home runs in AAA before he was brought up. Uh, but I mean, I, I you know, I hate the, the, you look at two weeks worth of data. Look at, look at Correa's last two weeks before you get all over me about the fact that I have him as a seventh best shortstop or whatever it is, as opposed to, you know, the second or third after, you know, Tulowitzki. And I'm counting Hanley Ramirez because he qualifies there and a guy like Jose Reyes. Some people want to put him in the top five, and he may end up there. But, you know, he, he has struggled the past couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to continue to struggle like that, but we're forgetting, you know, he, whatever it was, five homers the first two weeks or something. He has come back down to earth, and being the number seventh at a position when you're 20 years old, you know what, that's pretty good. It's really good, in fact. And finally, Todd, uh, we got a list of 15 outfielders. Most of them are the same from first half to second half. But I did notice that uh, Nelson Cruz of Seattle is off and uh, Carlos uh, Gomez is on. But the guy that caught my attention was Michael Brantley of Cleveland, who's really disappointed his owner so far. Yeah, Cruz is interesting. and I, I think we've talked about him in the beginning of the season where I was down, I was lower on him than a lot of other people were and uh, so I think my baseline for him may not have been as high, which is what's dragging him down a bit. Uh, Brantley's interesting, and I think we can even have a similar, you know, replace Brantley with McCutcheon and, and have the same discussion, is are they healthy? And uh, I just don't know. Uh, the number, 
The numbers generated are, they make their sense, they make plausible. They're, they're plausible based upon his history, if he's healthy. And the fact that he wasn't healthy over the first half and sort of lowered his baseline, so to speak, builds in a little bit of a, of a downside buffer, uh, already there. But if you know, do, do I, and I, I was called on it by our, another mutual friend, Scott Pianowski was, Saying we should take take a look at my my Brantley projection, and he's not convinced that he's healthy. I don't know. I sort of I guess in my head said, you know what? I will. Uh, he had the break. Let's see how he looks, and if I have to make an adjustment, I'll make an adjustment. People aren't that that, that base a trade now on this current number might not be happy about that, but I think if I made the assumption that he was hurt and that I lowered his numbers. And it turns out he got rejuvenated over the break and went nuts in the second half. Well, I have a different set of people that were upset with me. So I decided to just go with the numbers and, and see what happens. And I think we can say the same thing uh, about Andrew McCutcheon and his, his ranking. I think I'm assuming health going forward, and I think some people are tempering it a bit and, and might not have him in the top five going forward. Oh, this has been really interesting, Todd. Thanks a million for helping us out. It's a great way to start the second half. And we're, of course, looking forward to the balance of the season with uh, Todd Zola because, Todd, you're uh, always in the top 10. Well, that's, that, that's great. I don't, hopefully, we, uh, hopefully we'll keep it that way. Todd Zola writes for ESPN.com and appears every Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Stay with us. Our Friday commentaries are coming up. Pitcher matchups and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Vandal, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
It's time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy with Master Notes, and right now our Pitcher Matchups Report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on his opponent, the park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Everything else in between? Well, that's a risk-benefit analysis you'll have to take up considering your own league context. Now looking at Michael Pineda of the Yankees in Seattle to take on Hisashi Iwakuma and a Lone Star State battle with Dallas Koikel of the Astros hosting Giovanni Gallardo of Texas, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Coming out of the All-Star break, the American League division leaders are the New York Yankees, Kansas City Royals, and Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. In the National League, the division leaders are the Washington Nationals, St. Louis Cardinals, and Los Angeles Dodgers, also of Los Angeles. Both leagues have at least another four teams in their wildcard races, which makes the two weeks leading up to the Major League Baseball non-waiver trade deadline all the more interesting. So this weekend, let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to take closer looks at some pitchers who might be involved in your fantasy league trades. John Lackey, Bartolo Colon, Michael Pineda, Hisashi Iwakuma, Dallas Keuchel, Giovanni Gallardo, Tommy Malone, and Jesse Chavez. On Saturday in the National League, the Mets' 42-year-old control king, Bartolo Colon, takes a matchup rating of 145 into relatively neutral Bush Stadium in St. Louis. The cards counter with John Lackey, who protects his home field with the best matchup rating of the weekend at 302. The New Yorkers' road record and run production both rank 28th. At home and against right-handers, St. Louis ranks first. In his past six road starts, Cologne has an average PQS score of 3-2. In 10 starts from May through June, his ERA was 5.77 and his whip was 135. Lackey has not allowed more than three earned runs in any home start this season. And in his past seven home starts, he has an average PQS score of 4-4. His home whip is 1-0. There should be no lack of love for Lackey in this one. On Saturday in the American League, the New York Yankees' Michael Pineda enjoys the widest weekend margin between matchup ratings. He returns to pitcher-friendly Safeco Field in Seattle with a matchup rating of 190. The M's, Hisashi Iwakuma, is saddled with the worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 171. Iwakuma is making his third start since rehabbing a right lat strain suffered during his third start of April. After five lackluster outings in 2015, Iwakuma blanked the Angels for eight innings on three hits and two walks with a season-high six strikeouts. That was the first time he got his average fastball velocity up to 90 miles per hour this season. It's just too soon to tell if he's all the way back. Pineda has fared well on the road, with five PQS dominant scores and no PQS disasters in seven outings, other than a clunker at Baltimore. At home, Seattle's record ranks 26th, and against teams at or above 500 like the Yanks, the Mariners are 29th. While we wish Iwakuma well in this one, Pineda should prevail. Sticking with the American League on Sunday, we have All-Star Standout and BaseballHQ.com podcast paddle midseason Cy Young Award winner Dallas Keuchel at home in Houston, hosting the in-state rival Texas Rangers. Keuchel has the highest matchup rating of the day at 275. 
His mound opponent, Giovanni Gallardo, has been a pleasant surprise for Texas and brings in a matchup rating of 127. The Rangers boast the best road record in Major League Baseball, and against teams that are above 500 like the Astros, Texas ranks 5th. But versus left-handers, the Rangers are 25th, and in run differential, they are 20th. In home record, Houston is 7th. Versus right-handed pitchers and in run differential, the Astros rank 5th. And against teams below 500 like the Rangers, Houston is 11th. Gallardo's ERA is over a run better than his expected ERA. He's been the beneficiary of an 80% strand rate, and he's showing a career-low command ratio, also known as a strikeout-to-walk ratio, of 2-0. In 19 outings, Keuchel has 14 PQS dominant starts and no PQS disasters, with 8 PQS dominant scores in his past 9 efforts. Keuchel is the clear choice in this one. The sneakiest stealth risk pick of the weekend is Tommy Malone. He has a matchup rating of only 150 for his start in his former Oakland home park, pitcher-friendly Oco Coliseum. His opponent on the hill, Jesse Chavez, has the higher matchup rating of 207. Chavez has avoided any PQS disaster scores in his 15 starts and has six PQS dominant outings, including three at home, with an average PQS score of 3-5 but the A's home record ranks 28th, and against left-handed pitchers, they rank dead last at 30th. Against teams at or over 500 like the Twins, Oakland is 18th. Against teams below 500 like the A's, Minnesota ranks 7th. In his past six starts, Malone has five PQS fives, including three on the road. The risk lies in Malone's luck, especially an 83% strand rate, reflected by an earned run average to expected earned run average of 284 to 436. That's more than a run and a half difference. The risk you would be taking is that Malone's fall from grace won't begin with this game. So this weekend, watch out for Bartolo Colon, Hisashi Iwakuma, and Giovanni Gallardo, and go with John Lackey, Michael Pineda, and Dallas Keuchel. Jesse Chavez is a safer risk, but consider Tommy Malone if you want a long shot play. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. With a look at idle thoughts during the break, here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. There are any number of constructive ways to spend your all-star break. Heck, over the years here at Baseball HQ... We have probably written that article multiple times. You can analyze your league standings, determine which of your players are likely to see a change in fortune, engage in some trade discussions, and so on. This week, I certainly did some of those things, but I also took some time to take an actual break, just as the title of the week suggests we should do. Personally, I've always found that taking my own all-star break from the day-to-day grind of my leagues and games does wonders for my approach for the rest of the season. There's a lot of baseball still left to be played. If you have had success to this point in the season, that just means that you are going to face some important decisions ahead of you on the calendar. Nobody has won anything yet. Refueling for the stretch run can get you in the right frame of mind for what lies ahead. One thing I realized this week is how, this season in particular, I have been enslaved by my routines. The realization started on Sunday night, which is the transaction deadline in most of my leagues. 
a couple of my leagues slipped this week's deadline to Thursday, which is a great idea, by the way. And that lightened up my Sunday night workload for the first time since March. Since most of my full-season leagues have weekly or twice-weekly lineup changes, that usually frees up some time to play daily games during the week. When I am playing DFS, I suspect my routine is a pretty common one. Scope out the night's pitchers over lunch, start identifying some batters of interest. Once lineups start getting posted in the late afternoon, East Coast time, then you have enough information to sink your teeth into the lineup creation process. But once you have lineups submitted, you can't just walk away, or at least I can't. If you live on the East Coast, the lineups for the West Coast games generally don't become available until just before the East Coast games start. So you need to check on your West Coast guys to make sure they're actually in the lineup. Most nights, there are at least a couple of games that have weather concerns. And you need to keep an eye out for that deadly last-minute scratch that can scuttle your afternoon's labor. The problem, at least for me, is that all of this activity happens right around dinner time in my house. I really don't want to be that guy on the cell phone changing lineups at the family dinner table, but I'll confess that I've done that at least once this year. Last week, I was out in the Pacific time zone and much preferred how the daily schedule breaks out there. East Coast lineups are up early in the afternoon, West Coast lineups follow later in the afternoon, and then the East Coast games start at 4 o'clock. Back east this week with no games, I continued to enjoy being out of the late afternoon routine that dominated the first half for me. That got me thinking about ways to better manage that late afternoon hamster wheel for the rest of the season. For the moment, I don't have a lot of good answers. You can see the constraints involved. Teams report to the park several hours before the game. There's a set time for beat writers to get their first access to the locker room, at which time they see the lineup and publicize it for the first time, usually via Twitter. DFS, even though it's still in growth mode, wouldn't ever be big enough to to be able to create a change to that structure. That would be the tail wagging the dog. Or would it? The NFL has strict rules about disclosing injury information during the week before the game, and that rule is in place largely for the convenience of the gambling community. In the NBA, teams have been fined for resting healthy players in nationally televised games, lest they hurt the ratings of the league's valuable TV benefactors or partners. In light of examples like that, is it that ridiculous to think that, in the next few years, MLB teams could post tentative lineups the night before a game? Realistically, managers are always looking ahead and scheduling days off for their regulars based on matchups and so on. The notion of a player coming to the park and checking to see if he's in the lineup that night is kind of antiquated. Circumstances can always change, especially with day-to-day injuries and such. But maybe such a tentative next-day lineup isn't all that unreasonable in some near-future state. Or I could move to the West Coast. Even then, we would still need to improve those weather forecasts. Oh well. Enjoy the second half, everyone. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 43 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for our Friday News and Notes edition, Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. I also want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And remember our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Be the first to know when a new show is ready to be downloaded. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really helps us keep the show going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days when our Tuesday tout will be Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.